Countrywide on RTE Radio 1, sponsored by the Irish Farmers Journal. Now with our highest ever readership of 321,000 weekly readers. Countrywide on RTE Radio 1, sponsored by the Irish Farmers Journal. Now with our highest ever readership of 321,000 weekly readers. Good morning and welcome to the programme. I'm Brenda Donoghue and between now and nine, we visit the splendour of Ballyfin Domain in County Leash. We hear about how great racehorses are spending their retirement in counties Carlow and Kilkenny. And we meet the wonderful Alice Taylor in County Cork. First, an old philosopher once said, to live is to change, and if you're a farmer, you'll know exactly what that means. So much is changing in the farmyard and in the fields that sometimes it often seems hard to keep up. Amongst the changes coming down the tracks in 2022 are changes to the way that medicines for farm animals are prescribed. Superintendent Veterinary Officer with the Department of Agriculture, Dr Caroline Garvin, visited the farm of our reporter, Hannah Quinn Mulligan, where she explained the thinking behind these changes. Come on. Good girl. Come on. She put her head straight out. Good girl. So, we're in our slatted shed here and we have the Herefords in front of us and they've been in for about five weeks and we've done our faecal egg count and they need a fluke dose but I usually do it by myself but I have some help here today in the form of Caroline Garvin who is from the Department of Agriculture where she's a superintending veterinary officer so the cows feel honoured by your presence we don't feeling <laughs> <laughs> <Really> is mutual <laughs> um, the rules are changing aren't they next year in regards to this Yes, big changes, Hannah. From the 1st of June next year, you will need a veterinary prescription in order to get your worm or your dose, your drench. Um, This is because of concerns about these products not working as they should do due to resistance issues. So in a way to address this, we are also rolling out a TASA, a targeted advice, free advice service on farm. Cattle and beef farmers can apply and a nominated vet comes onto your farm, looks at your parasite control programme, gives you three recommendations, does two faecal egg counts. And so you're better able to use your wormers effectively, delivering better animal health, better outcomes, better sustainability in terms of your your food production. And it's free for all farmers, essentially. Absolutely free. So we want everyone to, you know, to get involved, to sign up. Um, It's a really important initiative, particularly in light of concerns around antiparasitic and wormer resistance. And then, say, in terms of antimicrobials, antibiotics, are the rules changing there as well next year? Yeah, the new regulations coming in, Hannah, have a very much a particular focus on addressing AMR, antimicrobial resistance, which is in essence antibiotic resistance. And this is because of threats to public health. And so the changes around antimicrobials mean that your prescription will only be valid for five days. What this means is you have five days to get it dispensed. 
but vets will have, I suppose, an increased responsibility in how they prescribe. They will have to justify their prescribing practices. They can only issue or prescribe an amount to treat the disease on the farm. Now, there will be concessions around having a small quantity on farm. Uh, something that's happening right now on dairy farms is a lot of cows are being dried off and dry cow tubes are being used. What are the rules going to be around dry cow tubes? There's a particular focus on preventative use of antimicrobials and it's very much being restricted down to individual animal use only. So what the new regulation is saying that a vet can only prescribe on an individual animal basis and a vet will need individual animal data to prescribe. So what we're talking about here really is going down the route of milk recording. A vet is going to need that kind of data to determine whether you can go down the route of selective dry cow therapy. There's another element to this in that prescriptions will be electronic. So they'll be issued by text message or they'll be issued by email and there'll be a prescription number with that. But the Department of Agriculture will be able to see through this new computer system exactly what each farm in the country is being prescribed. Can you see why farmers would be concerned and there's some kickback to that level of oversight? No, they shouldn't be concerned. I suppose the first thing to say is that this NVPS, National Veterinary Prescribing System, is being developed because there's a requirement in the new regulation that we as, as a member state have to submit usage data on our use of antimicrobials. This is because they're such an important resource that we need to keep effective in human health, so we need to look at their use levels in animal health. So this is a requirement to submit this data and we're collecting it through the NVPS. Antimicrobial resistance AMR is a huge concern and in 2020 animal medicine usage in Ireland went up by 17%. Where does Ireland stand in regard to, say, other countries and the type of oversight that's coming in? Well, I suppose, yeah, it was, it was disappointing to see that increase. But I suppose the first thing to say, Hannah, is that there would be a lot of caveats possibly with, with the data. It's voluntary data. And also there was concerns that maybe with Brexit coming along that there had been this increased sales of these products. The bottom line is, I suppose, Ireland needs to improve and reduce their overall use of antimicrobials. We're, we're an export market and any visits that we have from, from potential markets look at our use of antimicrobials. And this NVPS will give that accurate data to demonstrate the best practice as we move forward you know, and reduce our use of antimicrobials. We've got to get Betty dosed. <laughs> Good girl. Oh, she'll do anything for a bucket of meal, won't you, Pat? Hmm? Is there any specific countries um, where this has already been working? Well, the countries like the Netherlands or Denmark, they've had these systems, these electronic prescribing systems in place for 10 to 20 years. And that's how they're able to show, they're able to demonstrate their reduction. And they have set targets, they have benchmarked farmers, they've done all these things to drive down use. And because we haven't had a system, we haven't been able to do it. And... I think in line with this regulation as well, there's a huge uh, concentration on um, critical antibiotics. Well, this legislation is very much looking to restrict certain antimicrobials to human use only because AMR is a one health issue because we share the same groups of antibiotics. Colistin is something that's really critically important in this country in particular because it's used a lot in patients with cystic fibrosis for respiratory infections. 
But our animal health stakeholder group has voluntarily agreed to cease the use of colistin in animals. And that's a really, really positive step for animal health and for human health because there are alternatives to colistin. And similarly, we, we talk about the, the, the dry cow tubes, for instance. There are antibiotics in certain tubes that are drugs of last resort in human health. And so what we're saying now is that these should not be used as first-line treatment. And I know you mentioned before as well that your daughter recently had to go into hospital and the only antibiotic that could be used is one that was also used in animal health as well. Yeah, and I mean, this really brought it home to me, Hannah. Like, I mean, she's, she's seven years old, very, very healthy, and got a really nasty kidney infection. And she went downhill so fast when I brought her into hospital, you know, that they said to me, look, she, she's heading towards renal failure. And they did a culture and susceptibility testing, and I asked them to see the results. There was only one out of ten antibiotics that was going to work for her, and it happened to be an antibiotic that I'd used in calf scar, I'd used it in dogs, I'd used it in cats. And I just thought, you know... If I was a vet in practice now, I really need to consider how I use these antimicrobials because they're so important in human health. Wow, that was Dr. Caroline Garvin explaining the changes in animal prescriptions to Hannah Quinn Mulligan. And if you'd like further details of the free Tasha vet consultation available for your livestock on the changes that lie ahead, you can find them on gov.ie forward slash veterinary medicines. Now, as we approach the darkest days of the year, there can be great comfort in a good book. Since she published her first memoir to school through the fields in 1988, Alice Taylor has been writing books that remind us of times past, the value of community and the joys of nature. And she's at it again. Tea for One is her latest book. Good morning, Alice. Good morning, Brenda. How are you today? I'm very good. As I was listening to you there, I thought, God, hasn't the face of farming changed? Oh, I know. Oh, boys. But you know something? Isn't the farmer, the farmer is really the link, the vital link between us and survival. When you think about it, absolutely. And I know that in this particular book, you have a great affinity with cows as well. Isn't that right? And I was listening to the cows in Hannah Quinn's report there. You see, the cows are immune to all this. God bless them. (laughs) (laughs) All this is going on. The cow hasn't changed. We have changed. Well, can I go back to your book for a minute? Tea for one. And there's an awful lot about tea in it. And I'm thinking (laughs) about people maybe getting up this morning and they're pottering around the kitchen and they're putting the kettle on and they're making a cup of tea. But can you share with us your secret of a truly great cup of tea. You know, the making of a good cup of tea is an exercise in in meditation, in mindfulness. My mother would never make tea except she'd seen the kettle boiling herself. The water had to be boiling. And she, of course, she used loose tea. But you know now, at the advance of science and progress of life, I, like everyone else, resorted to the tea bag. And then one day, a couple of months ago, somebody brought me a packet of Ballymaloo loose tea. And I looked at it and it took me back to home and to the ritual of making tea. So I went back to making tea with loose tea, taking my time and creating a beautiful cup of tea. And, you know, while I was doing it, one of my lads came in and he said, what, what are you doing? I said, I'm making, uh, you know, I'm making 
a pot of tea. And he said, why did you change to tea bags? He said, he said, Nana would never have used tea bags. I said, I suppose life got so busy and tea bags were so convenient. But now I'm a convert. I'm gone back <laughs> to making proper tea, proper tea. And Alice, have you started to read the tea leaves yet? What do you do with them? No, but that was a great ritual, wasn't it? And yes. There were people that were very good at it. I know. Yeah, and I think it, you know, it was all part of the ritual, wasn't it? I think, you know, Brenda, we've lost our sense of um, of ritual and, and, and slowing down and taking our time to appreciate little things. Well, I think it's coming back a little bit with COVID. I think so. And all of that. And, and tea, for one, is a reflection of what brought you comfort, Alice. Yes. Uh, and you lived alone since your husband, That's Gabriel, right. passed away. Yeah. And obviously COVID made that much more intense. But certain things brought you comfort, including the the tea, but your garden as well. Oh, my God, the garden. I think if you're reared on a farm, the land is always close to your heart. And I'm blessed that I have a garden. I think anybody who had a garden during COVID, you know, were so lucky. And I think it, it kind of awakened an awareness in us of the value of working with the earth. And, um, uh, you know, the autumn before the COVID came originally, for some reason, I, I planted loads and loads of tulips. Sometimes I think there's a premonition, you know, it's above and beyond us. We don't understand it. But something kind of forewarns us that, that there's something coming. And I planted all these tulips. And I must say, Brenda, when when COVID hit in March, that first bang that we got, um, I must say that the, the, I went out into my garden and the tulips, red and yellow, and the I love tulips, the vibrant mm. colours. I, I think they saved my sanity. Probably. And you talk a lot as well about the ageing process, then the isolation with COVID. Yeah. And it was a learning curve for you. What did you learn about yourself, Alice? Well, I learned, I think, Brenda, that we have to, we have to learn to live with ourselves first and foremost. It slowed us down. And I think we, the, the coping mechanism came in, the appreciation of little things, just little things. And um, nature, I mean, I stood, looked at the night sky with a, with a new reverence. Because I remember when we were children, my father used to take us out, and I was um, grew up on the side of a hill looking over the Kerry Mountains, and um, he would take us out uh, at night, and we'd look up at the, the plough and the stars and the north, the northern star, and to study the night sky. And that time, you know, uh, farmers um, went out and looked at the night sky to judge the forecast for the following day. Mm. We've come a long ways, haven't we? Yeah. <laughs> but but uh, they were very close to nature. And I remember he used to always say, if there's a big crop of haws and sloes, that's nature providing wildlife for feed during the winter. So there was a great awareness of the harmony of nature. And I think that kept a great balance in our lives. And another thing I think, uh, Brenda, the COVID taught us, yes. we need each other. Yes. We, the neighbours and the friends and the family, it created a huge awareness, the importance of people. You know, and mm. um, keeping in touch and how great. I mean, I found the neighbours here and my, my family and my cousins um, 
you know, leaving things. A customer always leaving things at the door. The door held no significance. I never locked the door, but during COVID I had to. And it, I kind of felt, God, I might as well be in jail to be locked in. But it was lovely to open the door and find, you know, scones or a potted jam and, and then books. You know, people passed around books between each other. You could pass a house and put a book in, in, in a letterbox. And we are coming close to Christmas, Alice. Yeah. And it's such a wonderful time of the year. Yeah. And I know your love of Christmas from Lovely. your family farm when you were growing up. Yeah. You brought that to your village in Inishannon. Yeah. And Christmas Eve is going to be magical. I love Christmas. Ta- what will you be able to do, do you think, this year? I know you've got grandchildren and everything close by. Yeah. That that uh, I love the decorating now. Like I think with with uh, with COVID, we're we're at home more. Mm-hmm. We're we out less. So I think it's very important to to make your house as Christmassy and as lovely as you can. And you you know it doesn't have to cost anything. There's holly and ivy everywhere. I know. And uh, the Christmas candle. I love the lighting of the Christmas candle. Tell me about that, Alice. The symbolism of light, and. Um, my mother used to gather us all around. Uh, she made a big hoo-ha about lighting the candle. The Christmas was all about lighting the candle. And she had holy water, and she sprinkled us with holy water. And Christmas didn't officially begin in our house until we lit the candle. I light a Christmas candle and my crowd gather around. Now, teenagers, Brendan, can be a bit cynical and, uh, you know, offhand. Mm-hmm. I live with that, Alice. Yeah, I yeah, understand. Well, we all live with that. <laughs> but ignore it. <laughs> they come around, please. Yeah, they come around eventually. Yes. Yeah. But I think it's very important we hold the traditions. And I light a candle on every window. Wow. Because that's the old Kerry yes. custom. Yeah, and... Tell me, I'm thinking about this book, Tea for One. Yeah. And I feel that in terms of mindfulness and everything, you are far ahead of the curve and all your writings going back over the years and we're all coming around to your way of thinking nearly, Alice. But I was rushing in this morning. Now, there wasn't much traffic on the N7, etc. But I had to get the coffee, not the tea that I would like, your cup of tea. But it was all rush, rush, rush. And... You don't believe in rushing in the morning. No. The cows you love and they inspire you they do. at the start of a day. Yes. We're back to the cows, Alice. We'll go back to the cows. If you watch a cow in the morning, yes. because um, I suppose that was one of the pluses of growing up at a farm, going out to bring the cows in the morning. No, the cow didn't, the cow didn't jump up the minute she saw you. She stayed where she was and she got up very gently. And can I read a poem about about the cow, Brenda? Yes, sure. Look, Alice, I'd love to hear yeah. it. Now what this, is the poem? The poem is Unfold Me Gently. Go for it. Because a cow faces the day. A cow will never rush except we humans rush her. And in one last thing, Brenda, before yes. Christmas, my grandmother believed that the gates of heaven were open at Christmas. So I think that at Christmas we're closer to heaven than we are at any other time of the year. And I remember the year my husband died, he died in, at the end of November. And I remember thinking, God, Christmas is going to, going to kill us. Mm. But it didn't. I think the, the people who are gone come around at Christmas. That's I think a, we're very close to them. That is a very comforting It's a very, thought. Yeah, yeah. And I think I love Mass Christmas night. I think definitely the gates of heaven are open. Well, know. 
Will you do me a favour? Yeah. And give us a little blast of that poem. I will. People have their tea now. They're sitting down. They're settled. They're waiting for you, Alice. Go for it. Unfold me gently into this new day. As the sun slowly edges the horizon before bursting into a dazzling dawn. As the birds softly welcome the light before breaking into a full dawn chorus. As the cow rises and stretches into her own full body before bellowing to her companions. May I too slowly absorb, be calmed and centered by the unfolding depths of this bright new day so that my inner being will dance in harmony with whatever it may bring. Well, it brought you to us this morning, Alice. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to talk to you. And a very happy Christmas to you and all yours as you light the candles and and enjoy it. And thank you so much. Alice's latest book is called Tea for One and it's published by O'Brien Press. Enjoy your cup of tea now, Alice. Thank you, Linda. What a pleasure. Countrywide on RTE Radio 1, sponsored by the Irish Farmers Journal. Now with our highest ever readership of 321,000 weekly readers. Welcome back. I'm Brenda Donoghue. I'm with you this morning on Countrywide. So what happens to older racehorses when their career is over, but there's still plenty of life left in them? A few of them spend their retirement in the yard where they're trained. Some high flyers graze in the paddocks at the National Stud. But a new organisation called Troella aims to give retiring racehorses a second chance as show jumpers, eventers and hacking horses. Suzanne Campbell visited the Mullins in County Carlow to find out more. The barn managers come in at half six to check all the horses, make sure that they've got through the night okay. They get fed then. We muck out between kind of seven and eight, clean the stables. And then we ride out from eight o'clock to... In around one, half one, depending if we have four or five horses usually in the morning. And we take an hour for lunch and then we come back after lunch, brush the horses over, skip out their stables again, um, feed them fresh water, put them on the walker, put them in the field and um, we finish up at four o'clock. Patrick Mullins, son of trainer Willie Mullins, takes me through the busy day at one of the world's most famous racing yards in Clusutton, County Carlow. Patrick, an amateur jockey, is involved in a new initiative to rehome more racehorses after their careers are over with an organisation called Troella, meaning another direction. Troella, you know, the three foundations of it are to connect, support and promote. So, you know, we had horses here, Florida Pearl, Alexander Bank, with which we kept after their retirement. But obviously as the yards got bigger, it's harder to find homes for them all. So it's a great initiative to have a organisation where we can say we have horses for rehoming and people who are looking for horses can go to them and put us in connection with them so it works well. Rehoming it's become I suppose more on the agenda because like yourselves yards get bigger there's more horses in training and that's great it's a very active sector what are the issues when they come to the end of their careers? Where do most of them go and what do you try to do here in your own situation with those? Yeah, well, we've always had a list of people who would contact us saying, you know, they're, they're looking for horses. So if you have a horse that obviously A is sound and B has a temperament, 
they're very easy to rehome then. You know, people take them as hacks, people take them as hunters, show jumpers, dressage horses, eventing. Some, of course, go to the sales to go to other racing yards, some go point to pointing. So there are a lot of avenues there. But, you know, sometimes you have to hold on to them for four, five, six nine months until you find the right person for the right horse because it's important to find a good home not just any home most racing yards try to rehome horses but there is now more onus on welfare after racing and racehorse owners also need to be aware and prepared for their horse's life after their racing career has finished I think a lot of horse owners have realised that there is a responsibility with their horses when they're finished racing that they have to look for somewhere to end their careers Trainer Willie Mullins. So I think owners have to also bear the responsibility of looking after their horse when his racing career is finished. When a horse retires from racing, they're still only 10 or 11 years of age. And, you know, they're 10 good years or maybe more. And we try and rehome them all the time. And we know that the horses with the different temperaments, the highly strung horses that maybe need more advanced riders. But there's lots of horses there for the riders that are not as advanced and are easily rehomed and retrained. We look for people and these horses are there for free most of the time. You know, they will do show jumping, they will do eventing, they will do just ordinary everyday Saturday hackabouts. And We've been amazed at the work that some people have done. And I suppose when you think back decades ago, before I suppose warm bloods came into Ireland, the thoroughbred was the animal of the gentleman or lady hunter. It was the hack. It was the horse that did everything. So we tend to maybe have lost that feeling of their trainability and their versatility. Yes, they learn things very quick. They're adaptable as well. That's the key, I think, the adaptability of them. It's amazing. Young event rider Claire Farrell competes at international level and is retraining a horse for eventing that won over the flat and hurdles with Willie Mullins. She's based near his yard in Goran, County Kilkenny. Uh, This is Renati. He's an ex-race horse. From the first day, I realised that he was quite talented. He's a great brain, very easy to retrain very straightforward and he was very naturally well balanced yeah. so he took to the flat work very well he doesn't think he wants to hang around too much he wants to look at the, his friend <laughs> the pony over the rail he knows we're talking about him but um, he's a privilege to have in the yard he is a playful character it can be a handful walking out to the field so he will drag you out but he's, he'll stand and wait till you take the hell collar off but then you want to get out of the way because he does take off bucking around he's loving his new career he's loving a new way of life and definitely it's become part of the family which is a great thing every member of our family here have ridden him so he just shows that you can put anyone up on him mm. which i know not everyone can think of in a thoroughbred but he's a very would have been a very talented horse on the track i'm looking forward to hopefully a full season of eventing with him i really do think he could be one of the next big horses for it would you recommend to people who would particularly as sport horses are so expensive now just to consider maybe taking a horse from a racing yard oh definitely i think every racehorse has the trainability and adaptability to become a horse in a new career not just because they're an athlete you can produce them to be one of the very competitive event horse or show jumping horse or even in a show ring but you can also get the horses that you can just hack around and enjoy life on without breaking the bank either like you get such satisfaction out of it you're giving them a new opportunity and the fact that they want to do it with you is twice as good claire and her racehorse renetti will be competing in a pro celeb show jumping challenge organized by troella next thursday the show aims to exhibit the versatility of thoroughbreds to people who might want to rehome one patrick mullins is one of the jockeys on the teams competing 
which are made up of jockeys, show jumpers, event riders, and they're all jumping racehorses. There's eight teams. We've got a, a lot of professional jockeys. We've got a lot of professional adventurers, show jumpers. Sam Watson, the Olympian, is joining us. Colin Keane, David Russell, Paul Carberry. And then we're joining up them with people who have X-ray horses. And there's four on the team. I know Ruby Walsh's daughter, Isabel, is involved as well. So there's some younger people there. Was it hard to get the jockeys to commit to doing something in show jumping? That's not the usual day. Yeah, I mean, and it is the middle of our season as well. People are busy, but you know, everyone was happy to give their time. It's a great cause, and I think it should be an enjoyable evening. That was Patrick Mullins ending Suzanne Campbell's report there. And if you're interested in that event they mentioned, it's called Tro Ella Pro Celeb Challenge. It's on in Enfield County Mead next Thursday. Full details on troella.ie. Now with COVID and Omnicrom and Storm Barra, we haven't really been worrying much about Brexit this week. But if you were an exporter of certain types of food from Ireland to Britain, Brexit is going to change the way you do business phased in from the 1st of January. These changes will pose no difficulty for companies that are exporting globally as they're familiar with similar procedures. But if you're a smaller company exporting to only to Britain or the UK or EU, this will be all new to you. However, help is at hand and Donald Denver is General Manager of Boardbea UK. He joins us from London to tell us what all this means for Irish producers. Good morning, Donald. Um, good morning, Brenda. How are you? I'm good. Now, these pr- procedures are SPS checks. What are they and why are they required? OK, well, I was actually listening to Alice earlier there in your programme and she had such a lovely poem at the end. But I think at the beginning of your conversation, she said farmers are the link between us and, and survival. And that's so, so true. And I would say farmers are the lifeblood of what we do at Borbia. But there is another link in the chain and I suppose further along the, ch- the chain in order for the survival of exports and the thriving of exports to continue in the UK, there is a certain amount of planning and a certain amount of preparation uh, to go in in terms of new import controls. So some of the controls have already started, such as customs declarations came in actually at the start of this year already. And the new ones that are coming in in the next couple of weeks, as you mentioned there, are so-called SPS controls, and this stands for sanitary and phytosanitary checks. So they refer to certain plants and animal products. And essentially, from the 1st of January, the UK authorities will require pre-notification of these products on their systems from January 1st. And then from July 1st, there'll be a phased approach, July, September, November, depending on what food category that you're producing, where health certificates and physical checks will be required at the point of entry in the UK. So... At Borbia and my team here in London and, and further afield in, in Borbia, what we're advising Irish exporters to GB to do is to discuss this with your customer, discuss it with your importer about how this will work and who will be responsible for doing what at what stage of the supply chain, because it really does vary and it does. It does depend on what kind of a setup you have in terms of exporting to GB. So, you know, people need to have those conversations if they haven't had them already. Map out the supply chain. We can help with this at Borbia. We've got lots of supports available. You also need to know your ingredients. You need to know what's in your product. And that's especially for the introduction of the health certificates uh, later on next year from July. Uh, You can speak to us. You can speak to the Department of Agriculture, Food and the Marine on this. Also, what we'd like to encourage people uh, to do or companies to do is actually to also check 
whether or not um, they have been customs compliant since January 1st. And again, we can help with this. These are the controls that already came in. We have lots of supports. We've got one-to-one -one supports, workshops and training programs, online resources. We actually have a webinar next week, next Thursday, and people can check that out on our website if they'd like to register for that. And again, we'll have colleagues from the Department of Agriculture, Food and the Marine, Revenue Commissioners, supply chain experts um, at that webinar. So please do get in touch with us if, if you have any questions in relation to this. Our email is brexit at borbia.ie. You can also check out the Department of Agriculture, Food and Marine website, which is really informative on the SPS check side of things and also revenue commissioners on the, the kind of more custom side of things. So lots of support out there. And as you say, checks are coming in soon. I know it's, it, you know, it, it's, things can get so complicated when you hear you have all this kind of extra work to do. And then you start thinking about the costs. I mean, for small yeah. producers, is there going to be a cost factor, Donal? Absolutely. And like, you know, we have to acknowledge that for some smaller companies, they have already faced difficulties in this area this year. And they, they you know, there will be challenges into next year. But actually, oh, you know, and especially we have to be honest about it, if you're a smaller company, it's more difficult to find the headspace and the bandwidth to do all of this additional administrative work. So the larger companies usually have, you know, specific departments who are dedicated to this and therefore can can handle these things a little bit better. But like, you know, you can still plan and there are positives like overall trade from Ireland to the UK actually has been really resilient. We've actually increased our, our food and drink exports by 5% since 2016, which obviously was the year of the Brexit vote. The UK is still by far our most important export market. It still accounts for 34% of the overall food and drink exports. And there are reasons for that. British consumers love Irish food. You know, we survey them all the time. They have a huge openness and acceptance of Irish food. We always rank number one of any country outside of the UK in these terms. They see us as local and that means that they trust us. They have similar quality standards. We've got very long-standing trade relationships with the UK and Ireland. There's an interconnectedness and an interdependence and a mutual dependence, actually, uh, between the two countries in this sense. And actually, we did a recent survey and it showed that 80% of Irish companies who currently export to GB expect to grow or maintain their business into GB in the next year. So we are the best prepared country in the world when it comes to the Brexit controls. The support is there. There's no doubt there, there will be challenges for smaller companies. But, mm. you know, given the right headspace and enough time to dedicate this, maybe a bit of, bit of extra time to dedicate to it. These are challenges that can be negotiated. And we've and seen that in the trade figures that actually you know, we we've done quite well. We have done And you are so good to talk to us from, from London. It, a lot of information there. And if you are a small producer who exports to Britain, things are changing there is help available. You heard it from Donald there from boardbia.ie. There's actually a whole Brexit hub, lots of information and details of upcoming webinars. Donald, thank you so much for talking Thanks, to Brenda. us on Countrywide this morning. And finally this morning, scattered across the country are great Irish houses. Many were built as opulent family homes, but nowadays they're schools, golf clubs, hotels or tourist attractions. But in the 19th century, the Coote family built their grand house at Ballyfin Domain in County Leash. In the 20th century, the Patrician brothers had a secondary school there. And now in the 21st century, the house has been restored to its former glory as a discreet five-star hotel in, called the Ballyfin Domain, once named the best hotel in the world by Condé Nast. 
I've never heard of Ballyfin Domain. I'd never heard of it, actually, uh, until word got out that Kim Kardashian and Kanye West spent part of their honeymoon there in 2014. Now, there are rumours that other international celebrities like J.K. Rowling or George Clooney have visited, but shh, the staff are very discreet. They would never, ever comment on their guests. Countrywide's own Brian Moss was actually a student at the Patrician Brothers School at Ballyfin, where one of his teachers was Nina Horn. Brian and Miss Horn recently took a trip to visit the old school, and as they headed out the road from Mount Melick, the memories came rolling back. I remember my interview. Because right. my mother came with me. <laughs> For your job interview? Yeah, I was having like, uh, you know, and you're Connection. nervous, like, I think, yeah, and I suppose I had a bit of imposter syndrome as well yeah. because, like, it was always seen as, like, a really good, very academic school. Yeah. I kind of felt, am I good enough to be teaching there, you know? Yeah. And uh, so Mammy came with me in the car. <laughs> and all I remember about my first maybe week teaching there is. What I wore. <laughs> and so I, do I. Mine was a uniform. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I just remember I'd only got married that year and um, I'd lost my wedding ring oh. on the honeymoon. <laughs> <laughs> Again, Mammy kept saying to me, you know, why oh, you can't be going up there with no wedding ring on you when they know you're married. They'd be wondering, why have you no wedding ring on you? So I didn't borrow her wedding ring, but I did borrow her clothes for right. the first time. So you were dressed in your mother's clothes. I was dressed for, for the good first clothes. week of yeah. teaching. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I can remember going to the school bus, and it was uh, I was just in the uniform. Yeah, I was really nervous as well. Yeah. you got that feeling that Ballyvin was. Um, oh yeah. It wasn't like your ordinary school, so impressions no. mattered. But I must say. No, absolutely, they did, and. As we indicate know. into the building now, yeah, the gates so hasn't happy. changed. Right, um, had to go press yeah. a button to let us in. It wasn't it was a lot easier when we were going up to get in. Absolutely door open buttons. door policy back then. <laughs> Getting out was the trouble. Yeah. Lovely. So oh god, isn't it just beautiful? All yeah. the growing and oh, planting. Unreal. But do you remember that was all just basically that tarmac was, That was tarmac Adam and you went up to the right hand side where the yeah. bell would ring. I used to dread coming down that door. So Fred Crabiel, um, he unfortunately passed away this year, but he had a passion for Ireland and his wife Kay is from Kerry and he had a dream and a desire to find a country estate that had significance that he could then really release his passions in life. His passions were architecture, fine arts, gardens. Um, and to find something like Ballyfin that was as intact as an original domain with 614 acres, a house that dates back to 1820 when it was first started being constructed, it was something as a unique proposition. So the house today, it took four years for the original, for the Coote family to build the house between 1820 and 1824, but it took us nine years to do the restoration. But the restoration was far more than just the house. It was a much more uh, broader scheme of the domain as well. Um, a huge labor and, uh, and, and a passion. Peter White, general manager. Um, oh, here's the gold room. Right, the gold room is another yeah. famous room. Yeah, this was modeled on the what was this used for when you were teaching? And inside too, the house is transformed. That, I mean, the brothers were living in this house, mm -hmm. but, you know, trying to heat big rooms of this, these It was always cold, like it was... Yeah, they wouldn't have come in here at night like to have a game of Scrabble or anything, do you know what I mean? It was just too cold. 
The conservatory was out of bounds to both staff and students in my day. It was derelict and dangerous. So we make a beeline to see it now. Conservatory, straight down to the end of the house, folks. At the library? Yeah. Right. And on the right-hand side, there's a door in the corner. Oh, the secret door. Secret door. It's in the right, very far corner. Right. And the little handle is a little flick handle about that height. What's your name? Declan. Declan. What's your surname? Cuddy. Oh, Declan. Oh, you're a leash man. Oh, you went to school here? Yeah. Thanks, Declan. Thanks very much. Now, what, like, so... This is the library. Look at this book here. Patrician College Um Compiled and edited by Kieran Tinkler. Yeah, Mr. Tinkler was a teacher here. Originally from Port Harrington. That's right. He taught, me, he taught me French, actually. And that was... God almighty. Kieran's passion project. It's a lovely big coffee table book. Wow, goodness. Yeah, yeah. my God. There's um, Mr O'Connell, Lord of Marcion. Yeah, nice man. Yeah. There's Robert, oh, there's, Robert uh, Sheen. Picture Robert, Robert Sheen, yeah, the Rob actor, because he is, of course, a former uh, pupil here. Yeah. Love, hate, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And all the old tower magazines. We'll have a look at that. So this was the school magazine. Yeah. So my old classmates. But there's lads here you haven't seen in years. Yeah. And I'd like to mention our Mrs. Barry. Mm-hmm. Well, Tully there. Tully was a legendary football coach in yeah. these year parts. There's a, st there's there's a staff, staff one there. Are you? I'm probably standing beside Miss O'Connor. Yeah, there, there you are. In the tower magazine. The tall ones were always put at the back yeah. with the men. Oh, Somewhere. <laughs> Mr. Scott passed away yeah, recently. recently. Yeah, recently. Brilliant maths teacher, lovely man, a yeah. very good friend of mine. I remember him. He, Brian Mac. He was from Port Leash. Okay. You know, he plays. He played for Leash then. Oh. Oh, Bruno McCormick. Brian McCormick. Yeah, he was good footballer. Actually, very good footballer. There I am. There. Well, look, you had hair. Actually, I know it hair then. Yeah, I was full of promise. What happened? God, yeah. You see all the lads again. I think that's a secret door. What oh, looks like a bookcase? Oh, it's a secret door, right? Oh man! Look at this. This is class. Oh, going through a secret door into the conservatory. Oh my goodness! Oh, The glass is all the original glass yeah, as well. Yeah, and, and that's all the original lead work. And you can hear the... Waterfall. Actually, what this is probably more correctly called is an orangery. For growing hmm? oranges, like? Or I don't know wh whether it always meant that they would grow oranges, but it would be for tropical things. People like the Coots, the younger generation would have gone off on the grand tours, you know, yeah, they would have gone yeah, off yeah. To the touring. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And seeing things and trees brought, brought back. back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bits, pieces of seeds. Yeah, if, yeah. if that's what they were into. Now we're getting new. a full, we're getting a full view of the grounds now through this unreal conservatory. That's changed outside as well, isn't it? No. It's it's the it's planting bigger, isn't is it? different, isn't it? There's a rhododendron tree. Do you remember the rhododendron yes, tree? Yes. And there was another one down at the yes. lake, and it would always bloom around. Um, just when you knew the summer was coming, then really. I didn't appreciate because you're in school. Just how picturesque my yeah. school was, <laughs> you know. You were busy looking at the girls. I was busy looking at the girls. They were also picturesque. Also picturesque. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
And what will the future bring? With Fred's recent passing, uh, we have a new change uh, with his two sons who have now stepped up and have very quickly made a 10-year plan of, of where they want the estate to go. It's about the land and securing the land um, trying to um, remove some of those pine forests that were planted and replanting with native oaks, um, encouraging the birds, the bees, the, the, the wildlife that are on the estate. And then those guests that are here then get to enjoy that at a different level and see what sort of Irish sort of countryside is all about. Well, that was Peter White, General Manager, ending Brian Moss's visit to Ballyfin with his former teacher, Miss Horn. I think, Brian, your teacher's pet there. He's really trying hard to be. Anyway, if you win that 50 times rolled over lotto this weekend, that might be a nice place to go. And believe me, they won't tell a soul. Anyway, today's programme was produced by Eileen Hearn. Brian Moss was our broadcast coordinator. Caro O'Hare was on sound. Don't forget Ear to the Ground on RT1 TV on Thursday at 7pm. Playback is up next after the nine o'clock news. And on behalf of the whole Countrywide family, we'd like to extend our condolences to our colleague Marty Morrissey on the death of his beloved mother, Peggy. Damien will be back with you next week. Until I talk to you again, bye-bye and thank you so much for listening. Countrywide on RTE Radio 1, sponsored by the Irish Farmers Journal. Now with our highest ever readership of 321,000 weekly readers.